It's that inward out where he's going to do a work in you. He did not mean for us to do it alone. He didn't. I've always felt that I've struggled with wanting to share my love of Jesus with others. Holy Spirit, you lead this day, and I'm just here with you. You know, they say God sends people in your lives for a reason, and I think this is one of those things where he could really work through somebody in your life. I see myself now as worthy of love, as God's adopted child. I look in the mirror, and I'm so happy. Well, here we are, week four of Are You a Disciple? January is finishing up. Can you believe how fast 2024 is already going? I did talk to a few people before the service who said, actually, my January is quite slow, and it made me realize maybe because I've gone to warmer weather already. I'm doing great in January, but you may be like, we need to get out of January. Um, January feels like it's moving, and it feels like this series has been a great kickstart. We've done this whole 21 days of prayer and fasting. We've been asking you this question, are you a disciple? And yet, as we've been asking this question, I was struck by just this big, overwhelming sort of need as we close out this week to recenter ourselves on a question that I sometimes find myself as I'm just moving through the paces of life, things flowing around me. Uh, I suddenly find myself asking, what as a disciple am I really supposed to be doing here? Have you ever found yourself asking that? Like, have you ever had a moment if maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe Christianity has been around you, where you just pause and ask, like, what am I actually supposed to be doing? Like, why am I here? What's going on in this story that I find myself in? So I'm drawn to this, to this parable, uh, to a story that I heard again recently, of a man who was walking outside of a village, picture maybe like a European village in the sort of Middle Ages somewhere, and there are three men that this man finds digging a ditch. So there's just this big hole outside the village, and naturally this man who's walking by is somewhat curious, like, why are three men just standing here digging this ditch? So he walks up to the first man, and he looks at him and says, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? What are you doing? The first man looks at him and says, I'm digging a ditch. Like, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm digging a ditch. So the man, of course, isn't really fully satisfied with this answer. He says, okay. Uh, goes to the next man, the second one, who's standing there digging. And this time he says again, sir, I'm, I'm just really confused. I'm curious. What are you doing here? What are you doing? The second man is digging. He pauses and he gives a little bit more. He says, uh, we're actually clearing the ground so that we can put a foundation in. Uh, there's some large stones we're supposed to be moving here. So we're, we're preparing for the foundation of a new building. The man says, okay. Um, but he looks and there's the third man who's been most diligently at work, still digging. So he goes over to him and thinks he'll try one more time, looks at him and says, excuse me, sir, what are you doing here? And this man pauses, smiles, says, haven't you heard? We're building a cathedral. This is going to be the most beautiful and glorious building our village has ever seen. And every, every spot of this ditch that we're preparing is going to help erect this immeasurably beautiful building. What I love about this story, what it reveals is something that the business leaders talk about. You can find this in lots of different books. I think especially I've learned a lot from Simon Sinek recently, who has his book, Start With Why. The point is that each of these answers reveals 
really a journey along the stage of understanding what are we doing here? Why are we here? Because if we're being honest, a lot of the Christian life can feel a bit like digging a ditch. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, ditch digging, it's, it's kind of messy, right? It's mundane. You're just moving through the same motions. And as you hear these three responses, the first is just focused on the immediacy of the task. Like, I'm digging just to dig. And so that's not a bad place to be in. It's good to dig just to dig if the Christian faith for you has been just starting with the motions. Like, I go to church. That's how I follow Jesus. I I read my Bible sometimes. That's how I follow Jesus. I, I join a small group. These are all good things. You are digging the ditch. But the second response sees a bit of the bigger story, right? Actually, something's being built here. There's a foundation being prepared. Uh, There's a reason why I'm digging in this corner. There will be a place to stop so that I can turn and prepare another area for this foundation. But I think, as you hear that story, at least as I uh, was sitting in it yet again, I'm so drawn to the third response. I'm drawn to that response that is able to not just see the ditch, not just see the foundation, but who's picturing the whole time they dig. I'm building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral. And so this morning, I want to take you to one of the most famous teachings of Jesus, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus. And I'm taking you here because I want you for just this morning to get a glimpse of the cathedral, okay? To get a glimpse of what it is when someone comes up to you and asks, as you're in the middle of the trench, as you're digging away Sunday after Sunday, attending small groups, serving on teams, uh, helping the poor, reading your Bible, giving money to a church, if someone asks, why are you doing this? It's because Jesus wants to look with you and say, don't you see? We're building a cathedral. So let me take you to this passage. This is going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible on your phone, you want to pull it out, that's great. This is going to be Matthew 28. We're going to take you all the way to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll have it up on the screen as well. And in this passage, in just a second, we're going to get to this very, very famous teaching of Jesus. But before we get there, we get a little bit of context I find interesting. So let me take you to the context, then we'll get into this famous saying of Jesus. The context comes in verse 16. I'll go ahead and put it up on the screen. Now here in verse 16, we're told that Jesus has died and been resurrected. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, the whole story with Jesus has taken place. And here at the very end, we're told this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Okay, so the disciples have gone back to Galilee, where Jesus is from, where most of the disciples are from, where they've done a lot of Jesus' ministry. You sense there's a little bit of sort of returning to the familiar. This is returning to home base after all the excitement's been in Jerusalem. Now we're back in Galilee, and we're told that they head to a mountain. If you follow through the Bible, mountains are exciting places. (laughs) Mountains are where the powerful things begin to happen. God loves to show up on a mountain. Uh, Jesus picked his 12 disciples on a mountain, if you remember. He goes up to a mountain, he prays, he picks his 12. So they're kind of heading back to home base, heading back to the source of excitement where things kind of kicked off to begin with. Yet this is the most interesting part of this context. This is now verse 17. Jesus is going to show up. Uh, He only had a few appearances with his followers after he rose from the dead, but he did have several. This is one of them. And when he shows up, Matthew tells us this. 
Verse 17, I almost never caught this before. When they saw him, the disciples worshipped him, but some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I I have to pause here for a second because I never caught this before. This is the moment. This is the climactic moment, the triumphant moment. This is the moment when everything has come together, like these followers of Jesus. They've walked with him. They've heard him. They've missed several of his teachings. They fought with each other. I mean, these guys were messy. Things were swirling around them. They get to Jerusalem. They all abandon Jesus in Jerusalem, and yet Jesus brings them back together. He miraculously raises from the dead the very thing he told them this whole time he was going to do. And now they're here, like, this should be the party. This should be the celebration. And yet, clearly, for good reason, when they see him, many of them worship him. So they begin to worship, like, this is clearly the Son of God. This is the one who died and is now risen. But some still doubted. Some still doubted. Uh, The Greek here is a word that actually almost closer to hesitated. This isn't necessarily full-fledged, like, doubting Jesus is alive. Clearly, Jesus is in front of them. Nor is this probably the rigors of, like, some of them were getting ready to turn tail and say, hey, I'm heading home. Like, this is too big a climb. Don't want to do this mountain stuff anymore. But instead, it's almost more the sense of, like, in the midst of the emotion, in the midst of the excitement, maybe, though, even in the midst of the pressure, that now, on the other side of this, there's this new reality. There's this new kingdom that's being laid out in front of them. Some hesitated. Like, they're feeling it. They feel the pressure of what it means to hold this allegiance to Jesus that they have committed themselves to. Uh, There's this brand new book that just came out. I actually had a chance to read it this last week. Uh, It's called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. So far, this is my my top 2024 recommend. Uh, John's recommends. This is at the top of my list. Um, And it's a UK radio, uh, Christian radio announcer named Justin Brierley. Justin Brierley. And what's so fascinating about Justin is that over in the UK, he got government funding to host this radio show where he brings in the very top intellectual Christians and the very top intellectual skeptics. Uh, And normally they're scientists, they're psychologists, they're historians. If you look up his show, it's fascinating. And he sits them down together and really respectfully, he creates dialogues and conversations about faith and religion, particularly in their field of expertise. Um, So some of the most interesting ones inevitably are the science conversations where they're discussing Uh, evolutionary theory. Where did the world come from? Um, What is the Big Bang really? And what I love as you walk through this this book, I mean, his case is there actually is a surprising rebirth of belief taking place right now in the academy, in the academics. Uh, You don't really hear about it. You wouldn't think about it. Um, He mentions a stat that Pew researchers right now have found very consistently um, that when they survey academic scientists, you always get this sense of like, oh, well, the biologists, they don't believe in Christianity. Well, the astrophysicists, they don't believe in Christianity. No, actually, Pew has discovered about 52% of academic scientists say they believe in some form of God, higher power, whether it's the Christian God, some other sense. So he's just sort of exploring this, and there's lots of good conversation. There's lots of good evidence. They're wrestling with all these big questions. Um, There's a really great conversation with Sam Harris, who 
you may know as one of the leaders of this old movement called the New Atheists. And at one point, Sam is being pressed by Justin, and Justin says to him, um, is, there, is there any evidence that could appear for God that would get you to believe in God? And Sam says, no, no, there's no evidence that would change my mind confidently that God does not exist. And Justin looks at him and says, so you have faith. So you have faith that God doesn't exist. That's, that's the nature of your belief, to which Sam kind of smiles like, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, I simply, and I think, sorry, Sam's response is, I don't want to believe that God exists. Uh, that's where I stand. So in these conversations about like tension and, and faith and like, well, what do you believe in? You've got to believe in something. Maybe you believe in God. Maybe you don't believe in God. Uh, the ones that moved me most as I was working through this book again were not all the facts and figures. We're not the arguments over science, um, but we're actually historians, psychologists, scientists who honestly at different points conveyed the sense not that they didn't believe, but that they wanted to believe, and yet they just still struggled so much with doubt um, at one point. Tom Holland, who is a Oxford historian, who's been following this journey of Christianity, um, was studying the Greeks and the Romans, and started to realize that actually all of the good things across human history that have really taken place and flourished have sort of come out of these teachings of Jesus. He's wrestling with who Jesus is. He's starting to describe this journey of finding his way back to God. He's sitting with Justin. They're talking about faith. And as he is conversing with him, at one point he says, uh, Justin asks him, so Tom, are you a Christian then? Would you consider yourself a Christian in this big journey? And Tom Holland replies with this, sometimes, sometimes I think I'm a Christian. Sometimes I'm not. Um, sometimes it feels really hard. Sometimes I, I just can't, I can't believe it. Sometimes I just can't get into it. But, but sometimes I'm a Christian. I come back to this passage, verse 17, right before Jesus' great commission. And I've lingered here simply because I want to give you permission as a follower of Jesus, as an urban city dweller who is wrestling with all of your own pressures and complexities, who lives in the day-to-day -day trenches of faith and doubt. I just want to encourage you this morning as we are trying to get a glimpse of this cathedral with Jesus. Question, are you a Christian? Might, might be honest enough for you to be able to reply, sometimes, Sometimes, like, I, I'm here with Jesus, I'm on the mountain, I'm ready to go, and sometimes I really see it. Sometimes I really get it. Sometimes I'm really ready. Sometimes, sometimes I doubt. Even Jesus' closest followers, before he leaves, are struggling with doubt. However, that is not where Jesus leaves them. So let's continue, see how Jesus responds to this moment. This is now verse 18, and this is going to sound probably a little bit familiar to you. Jesus came and said to them this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Okay, we're just going to walk through this passage. We're going to sit with the cathedral Jesus is building. We're going to talk about a couple practical steps. Uh, 
in light of it. And first, let me begin with the authority. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think this line is really important in responding directly to the doubt that was just being experienced. As these disciples are standing here, I mean, I think, I think if I was one of these disciples, I would be struck that Jesus is alive, but he hasn't been here every day, right? So you're kind of looking around like he's showed up sometimes, but like, He seems like he's going to be leaving soon. He taught us something about that. And so these disciples are looking around them at the Roman authorities that are still operating, uh, at the Jewish leaders who are inevitably still frustrated with their movement. And and these disciples have to be saying just a little bit like, Jesus, um, you sure you don't want to stick around? You know, like, are you sure you don't want to just still be a part of this thing with us? Like, could you not Stick with us for a little bit longer. Let's maybe sort out some of these rulers, these leaders. And yet, as the disciples are wrestling with this, Jesus reminds them something that I do think would hit home a little differently after Jesus' resurrection. He says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Um, Each of us are living currently under some types of authority. Uh, You feel authority, even if it's just subtle, as you're driving down the road, when the traffic signals turn, or God forbid, when one of those photo traps blinks at you in Chicago all the time, uh, there's authority. You feel authority in your workplace. Uh, We just had a friend who has started his own business this last year, and we love joking with him, like, oh, is it nice to, to be your own boss? Is it nice, you know, having complete authority, to which he always laughs and is like, do you know what having employees to deal with <laughs> feels like? Like, I am not my own authority. I ask for people to do things. I, they don't get it done. There's no place you can go where there are not authorities sitting over you. And yet here, Jesus says, all authority on he- in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think the disciples especially need this as they're heading into this commission Jesus is about to give them because Jesus is reminding them, listen, when I died and rose again, I claimed and asserted authority over death itself. Death itself is now under my authority. As Jesus is about to send them out into the world, he's just reminding them, much as he's reminding us, all authority has been given to me. There is nothing we need to fear. There is, there is no missing power here, even as we live in a city that can at times feel large and intimidating. So what is it then that we're supposed to do? If Jesus has all this authority, what is the command, what is the commission that he sends us with? There's two imperatives. There's two verbs that sit right next to each other. They both matter. The first one is this. Go, Jesus says. Therefore, go. Now, I love if you follow the story of the Bible, God is always telling people to go. Have you ever noticed that? Like, God never really says all that often, just stay, uh, just, just, you know, be, be comfortable for a little bit longer. Like, settle in, just stay. No, God is always pushing people out of the environment they find themselves in. He sends Abram out. He says, go, go into this new land. He takes Moses when he appears at the burning bush. He says, go, go back to Egypt. Uh, He's going to take Isaiah. Isaiah is like overwhelmed and afraid and has this big prophetic task. God says, go, I need you to go. And then finally, Peter, in just a few more chapters in the Gospel of Acts, he's just going to keep getting pushed out by God. God's going to keep saying, Peter, 
Go, go, go out into the streets to tell them what has happened. Go into the home of a Gentile to invite them into this new family experiment that God is doing. Yet here, here's my encouragement to you as I begin with the go, and the go surely matters. Uh, there's no more important place, I would argue, that we can go than to the city. There's no more important place we can go than to the city. Um, some stats on this are that right now, 52% of the world's population lives in cities. So if you check out, I think it's something like 3.7 billion people currently reside in cities. Uh, that same stat is pretty true across the United States. The estimate is that by the year 2050, it's going to be up to 70% of the world's population are going to be living in cities. A number of amazing things happen in cities, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, one wonderful thing that happens in cities are density. You cannot avoid people. I don't know if you've noticed this. You can just, maybe if you've ever lived in the suburbs, if you grew up in the suburbs, it's possible to sort of try your best to ignore people in the suburbs. Like, you see them in the grocery store a bit. You see them in the schools sometimes, maybe at the movie theater. In the city, you cannot avoid people. People are everywhere. People who have needs, people who are hurting, people who are doing really, really well. In fact, this is my second argument for the city. Uh, across the city, there is immense diversity in addition to density. Um, I heard the late pastor, Tim Keller, have this great line where he said, the city attracts the strongest and the weakest of society. You think about that. Cities, by nature, draw in those who are looking for excellence, those who are chasing success. If you're in an industry of some kind, whether it's the arts or business or finance or a CPA, like the strongest get drawn into the city. But the city also manages to draw the weakest together as well. People congregate where there are resources. People congregate where they have needs. Uh, communities are able to depend on each other in very thick, particular ways in cities. So my point in all of this is to say, the city is where God wants to work. The city is this incredible place for mission to take place. And guess what? I have great news. You're already in the city. You've done it. You're here. Uh, you have gone. Uh, if we were to send you as a missionary anywhere, I would vote that we send you to the city. And so statistically, on average, our church holds people for about two to three years. You can all look at yourselves and consider this your two to three year missionary journey here in the city. Uh, I realize that may not have been what you were expecting. Uh, you're gearing up for the therefore go, you know, it's time to head out to the neediest places of the world. No, the city needs you right here in Chicago. So great news. You've already gone. Uh, you're here. You're on the cutting edge. You're on the front line of the mission field. The only thing that's missing here is for you to realize you are actually on the mission field here in the city. So when it comes to going, maybe, maybe there's a little bit extra intentionality required for you. In whatever workplace you find yourself, maybe your work is your go. Uh, your work is the place where there are people working alongside you, especially if you're going back into the offices. See your office as the place that Jesus is telling you to go. Like if you commute into the loop, that 40-minute train ride on CTA, see that as your go every morning. You are going into the heart of the city where the strongest and the weakest have gathered side by side. It's an incredibly exciting opportunity. and You'll probably only be here for a couple of years. What if you saw your workplace as the place that you were meant to go? However, at this point, you might be asking, what is it we're supposed to do if 
the go is already happening. What are we supposed to do when we go? Well, Jesus gives us the second command. You've probably heard this before. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Now, I need to give you just a little bit on making disciples, and we're actually almost going to wrap this up. Uh, When it comes to making disciples, I think this sometimes can become a word that I know many of us have grown up around Christianity. It, It becomes almost a churchy word, doesn't it? Make disciples. If you It's one of those words, if you say it 10 times over and over again, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to make disciples. You get to the end of the sentence, you're like, what in the world am I supposed to be doing? Like, what is a disciple? What does it mean to make a disciple? What is disciple? It just feels like too churchy of a word. So in order to re-enter the word discipleship, the picture that Jesus is operating in, in the first century, is one of schools that would take place, schools of thought, and this was very common in Greek and Roman society, and this was very common in Jewish culture as well around Jesus. Essentially what would happen is these teachers would rise up who were generally known for having some compelling vision. They had a vision of how you were meant to live your life. Now, I mentioned Simon Sinek. We have tons of these visionaries today. They inhabit a place called TikTok. They have a thing that we call followers. And you will find, if you scroll on TikTok enough, that there are many competing voices who are each presenting to you, whether it's a mom who's telling you the best way to raise your kids, whether it's a finance bro who's telling you how to set up your budget. There are so many schools still today uh, that are inviting you to quite literally follow them. But in the ancient world, these schools were physical, they were real. And as teachers would sort of move around, they would gather together students, that's quite literally what the word disciple means, it's a student of a teacher, and these teachers would show these students how to live life the way life was intended to be lived. So you had Socrates and Aristotle, you had Plato, you had the Cynics and the Stoics, uh, and those were all competing visions in the Greek culture that were essentially offering to you, this is really how you should live, this is the way to live, and you would follow them. You would literally walk around. You'd notice how they talk, how they dress. You'd notice what they did with their money, uh, how they interacted with people. You'd observe them at the meal time. You'd sit with them at tables. Uh, You'd enter into quiet places with them, and then you'd see them interacting with large crowds, always teaching, always demonstrating. And the whole time you're absorbing this intentionally as a student because ultimately you want to live the way that this teacher is saying you should live. But there in the Jewish culture, uh, this typically looked like rabbis, uh, rabbis who would take God's law, take God's word, and they would offer through their teachings how you were meant to structure your whole life around God's law. So in Jesus' day, the two most famous rabbis were Hillel and Shammai. They had two competing schools of thought uh, where different students, disciples, would kind of jostle up against each other in different villages and towns. It was pretty common if you were to enter into like a normal village scene um, where you'd be interacting with different people. You would ask them, well, who do you follow? Are you a follower of, of Hillel or are you a follower of Shammai? And that would normally draw out how you chose to structure your life and to live. Jesus, of course, comes onto the scene and the first thing he does is gather disciples, gather students. In fact, the 12 in particular, but then you hear these stories, right, of these large crowds. 
that start to swell around Jesus. It's people coming to Jesus to ask him, how should we live? How should we structure our lives? How should we, how should we be in this world? Um, there's this very fancy philosophy term I wanted to teach you this morning. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's called habitus. Do you want to go ahead and say it with me? Uh, we can say this together on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three, habitus. We'll put habitus up on the screen. I've got a definition so it becomes less intimidating. Uh, habitus is this fancy term from Aristotle that essentially said, if you study well, studying isn't like a mental task. Our school systems are built on memorizing information, filling in A, B, C, D, multi-choice answers. That's not the kind of learning that was taking place in these ancient schools. Instead, these schools were looking to to build up in you a habitus, which is where you see the word habit come from. Uh, The habitus is this sense of a whole way of being that's reinforced, it's embodied. In fact, you've done it so often, it becomes intuitive as a way to respond to the world. You kind of see what I'm really trying to stretch here is this isn't just a set of beliefs. These aren't just values that you drill into your head. This is actually a whole way of life that gets expressed in every area. Um, I think the closest thing as I was really wrestling with like how, how to make this practical, how, how does this often play itself out? Habitus normally happens, I would argue, on your Zoom calls during the first three minutes of your Zoom call. Have you ever noticed how strange the first three-minute spaces to a Zoom call with your company. Uh, Jenna does a lot of Zoom calls. I get to overhear them. Some of my Zoom calls are strange, too. Apologies to Marissa and to <laughs> Gordon for how they can start. But those, those three minutes, you have this open space to just simply be, right? And you're connecting with people, professionals you work with. Have you ever paid attention? What happens in that open space? This is the habitus. This is where your natural, intuitive way of life begins to be expressed. I I notice all the time on Zoom calls, a lot of companies end up having employees that you jump on a Zoom, and the first thing is you complain. You're like, ah, today's terrible, and I hate the weather, and this project is terrible, and this client is terrible. This is so frustrating. Uh, That really, you know, it's understandable. I get it, but this is sort of the interior of your life being expressed. This is the trueness of who you are, coming out of you. Uh, There are, though, of course, opportunities throughout your day, as you think about it, for you to express or to demonstrate a countercultural habitus, right? An opportunity for you on that Zoom call to kind of stop uh, the initial sort of complaint, the frustration, and really genuinely ask somebody, um, hey, what did you get up to this weekend? How was your weekend? And then as they share something sort of offhand, well, it was you know, I didn't really have much to do. Uh, I had to go to a funeral. You pause and you say, oh, oh, wait a second, I'm so sorry. That was, did you say a funeral? Somebody passed away? Who was it? Did you, did you know who they were? Uh, funerals are really hard. Uh, you see what I mean? That this habitus is like, it's hard to get your hands around, but it is a way of being that you can feel. Here's the point, coming back to Jesus' great commission. When Jesus tells us to go and make disciples... He is inhabiting this world in which followers, intentional followers of a set of embodied, intuitive response as a way of being to the world, followers of this way begin to intentionally structure their lives so that their whole being starts to express a certain teaching, a certain vision, a certain pattern. And this for me really helped unlock 
discipleship. Not that it necessarily is uh, on the ground, three steps to following Jesus. But instead, if we walk through the rest of the New Testament, it starts to reframe, this is Acts 9-2, the very earliest followers of Jesus, interestingly, started to be known as followers of the way. They were called simply followers of the way. This was how they actually described themselves. It was like these followers of Jesus were really intentionally saying, we're not just here to champion a belief. We're not just here to champion an idea or to fight for a cause. Instead, we want you to know through our whole way of being that we are following Jesus's way. We are on the way of Jesus. Uh, there's one more beautiful verse in John 14, 6. That again, sounds a little different when you sit in this Uh, conversation around discipleship, Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you ever wonder what that means, the way? I I always almost assumed it was like a ticket almost, you know, like Jesus is the ticket (laughs) to the Father. No, I, I think Jesus is quite intentionally saying, I am the way, Like my way, when you follow me into forgiveness instead of holding evil against others, when you follow me into love, uh, viewing not just your family but your community as your brothers and sisters under your heavenly Father, uh, when you start to live mercifully and sacrificially, when Jesus says things like, you know, if they slap you on one cheek, offer them another. If they take one cloak, give them the other off your back. Jesus is saying, I have come to show you the way. This is the way of living with God. This is the way of living at peace with each other. And this comes all the way back now to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus says one more time, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and show them the way. Jesus is essentially saying. So so here's my argument for you. This is the cathedral that Jesus wants us to remember. Uh, Christianity can at times feel like a ditch that you are digging in. At times it can feel like you're just putting shovel down, you're moving some dirt. You might not even feel like a lot of progress is being made. Your shovel is pretty small. Um, But when we as a community of followers of Jesus live here in the city, when we live in Lakeview, when we live in Lincoln Park, when we live up in Roscoe Village, in North Center, when we live up, uh, when we go into our offices in the Loop, what's going on is that we are going into the city, this group of a hundred of us or so, and we are living the way of Jesus. In fact, at our best, we will live this way so intentionally And this can especially at times start to glimmer through in our small groups, which is why we love small groups so much here in the city. We live so intentionally that we actually begin to form and instruct each other to deepen our understanding of this way that Jesus has come. In fact, the best way you're going to learn more about this way is to be able to position yourself next to other followers who start to become your teachers, who start to become the ones who instruct you, that when you go to small group and you notice the way that a small group participant loves their spouse, you start to say, wow, that, that's like really beautiful. I think I want to get married and I want to have a spouse 
that loves me the way that I'm seeing these two followers of Jesus love each other. Uh, when you go to a small group and you hear about another member in your small group saying, you know, I just, I felt so compelled by the needs of the poor as I go into the loop every day that I sort of altered my path and I went out of my way. I got a water bottle. I put together this care package. I wanted to meet their needs. This is another way that you start to feel the way of Jesus forming, shaping, instructing you. Uh, this is Jesus' dream for the world. There's, there's no other dream. There, there's not really like a magical formula or a magical power uh, per se. Instead, these followers of Jesus are going to wait to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they are filled, they together in community, starting in a city, starting in the city of Jerusalem, they're going to follow the way of Jesus together. They're going to live it. And as they do it, they're going to intentionally reach out to others around them to invite them in. Hey, do you want to join me in this way that I have discovered? So Jesus uh, gives us three very concrete ways to embody, to demonstrate this way of following him. One is baptism. Uh, I'm really excited this spring. We're going to set you up more for this in future coming weeks. Uh, if you've never been baptized, baptism is the wonderful initiation into the way. It's this public proclamation where you step into the waters and you say, I want my whole life to be cleansed. I want to go down to symbolize death to my sin. And then when I come up, I want to proclaim that Jesus was risen from the dead and is now my Lord. Uh, baptism is such a beautiful way to enter into the way. Uh, Jesus actually also mentions teaching. This is what you get here on Sundays. This is what you get through podcasts, through Bible studies. I mean, there's so much content out there now. But just to say, teaching helps us learn how to follow this way. But then finally, Jesus says, you're also going to get my presence. As you are moving and living in the city, you will not actually be alone, but I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. You are not alone as you are digging in this ditch that you find yourself. Whether you're struggling with doubt, whether you're moved to worship, whether you are able to offer instruction to others in this way, or whether you right now are going, man, I could really use a community to help me learn how to follow Jesus. You are not alone. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the very end. So here's the most practical next step I can give you. Uh, Jenna's already done such a wonderful job setting this up. We're going to be inviting you in the next month or two, uh, what we're doing with our small group leaders actually even this afternoon. So we want to offer you this tool of a U-plus conversation. So U-plus is what's going to really help you uh, reflect on your relationship with God. It's going to help you reflect on your connection to the church. And it's going to help you reflect on your connection to the world. There's a simple 15-minute devotional that you start with that's kind of a chance for you to ponder uh, what God is up to in your life. And then, as Jenna already so brilliantly shared, a conversation is what unlocks the next step. You're going to get to sit down with one of us. It could be anybody here in this community. It could even be a trusted spiritual friend, advisor, anywhere else. Anybody can do it. Uh, and in this conversation, you're going to chart out, where is Jesus inviting me forward? Where maybe should I go that I have not yet gone? Where maybe should I begin to form, be formed by a community of friends? Uh, where is a step that if I took it, it could reshape this habitus of my life? Let me go ahead and close this in prayer before we move to communion.
Jesus, we thank you as we hear your word and as you paint this, this invitation for each of us. We first thank you that you meet us in our doubt. We thank you that you hold space for us even here in the city to wrestle, to get distracted. But Jesus, we long to follow you more closely in this way that you have come to teach us. So Jesus, I pray for every person here that our church would be an encouragement to them, would be a place of community, would offer them practical tools that these conversations might flow forth so that as a whole community right here in Lincoln Park, we would actually become this shining light out to our neighborhood, in our workplaces, on our Zoom calls, Lord, where your love would flow through us so that you can begin to change the whole world through your church. We lift this prayer up in Jesus' name.